I've long had a bad habit of letting my mouth leap before it looks. It's gotten me in trouble many times, though never as much as in middle school when most kids, myself chief among them, have yet to develop reasonable verbal filters. My sixth grade science class was held in a large room that was split long way down the middle. On one side were the teacher's desk and chalkboard, as well as several large tables, each meant to seat three or four students. On the other side of the room were five or six lab stations. That's where, when first attending the class, a student assumes they'll be making dangerous acidic concoctions or raising fetal pigs from the dead. But really, the most excitement we ever had there was picking mouse bones out of avian hairballs. One day, after we were fortunate enough to waste a portion of the class on some glorified arts and crafts project in the lab, we were asked to begin cleaning up the stations. On one of the lab countertops, someone left a knife. I can't remember if our assignment required it or why it was there. Maybe the teacher was using it to assist students, or maybe an older, more responsible class in a prior hour had left it by mistake. Either way, on one of the countertops, someone left a knife. As we were cleaning up, a student named Levi, with whom I have no recollection of personal animosity, began making fun of me. So I told him to shut up. Those were my exact words. Shut up, Levi. Before I could understand what was happening, that 12-year-old boy had grabbed the knife from the counter and crossed the handful of feet between us at record pace. I laughed nervously as he held me in place with his hand on my chest and pointed the blade directly at my throat. Scramble Transmissions is a podcast about anthology television and a human condition. These series vary in release dates and ratings, so the episodes discussed may contain nudity, sexual content, graphic violence, and outdated cultural references. Viewer and listener discretion is advised. name every anthology show you could, what would be the first three titles you'd think of? Twilight Zone, Tales from the Crypt, Black Mirror? All series which have, for one reason or another, successfully permeated pop culture and avoided a disappearance into obscurity. However, one of my aims with this podcast is to introduce listeners to television series with which they're not as familiar, either classic or modern, canceled or current. The series Room 104 may be known to avid followers of new HBO content, but to others who may be hearing the title for the first time, Room 104 is, in my opinion, one of the most fun and inventive television shows currently on air. The overall premise is simple. Like most anthology series, each episode is a different story with different characters. However, the one thing connecting these tales is the setting. Every installment of Room 104 takes place in the same titular hotel room, Notably, this format was attempted by HBO before, 28 years ago. In 1993, surrealist filmmaker and artist David Lynch co-created an anthology series titled Hotel Room and produced three pilot episodes which were poorly received. As a result, a full series was never picked up. But it wasn't Lynch who would, nearly 30 years later, return to the concept and get it off the ground. Instead, it was another pair of writers and filmmakers with their own unique style. 
brothers Mark and Jay Duplass. Known for producing independent films such as Jeff Who Lives at Home, Safety Not Guaranteed, The Overnight, and Creep, among others, the brothers have also produced a few series for HBO, including, of course, Room 104. The series premiered on July 28, 2017, with the episode titled Ralphie, which is what we will be discussing today. The episode was written by Mark Duplass, directed by Sarah Adina Smith, and stars Melanie Diaz. If you haven't seen the episode, here's the rundown. Meg is hired without a review of her qualifications or references to babysit a boy named Ralph. Ralph's father has a last-minute date and is in a hurry to leave the motel room without introducing his son, who is hiding in the bathroom. When Ralph finally enters, he seems to be a nice kid, but warns Meg that another child, Ralphie, is asleep in the bathroom and should not be disturbed. Meg assumes this is imaginative play and laughs it off. However, as the night goes on, Ralph occasionally disappears to the bathroom and Ralphie emerges, wearing only a cape and underwear, to violently threaten Meg. Something is eventually triggered in Meg. She sees Ralphie attack and presumably kill his peaceful counterpart before turning his attack on her. In what appears to be an attempt at self-defense, Meg suffocates Ralphie with a pillow. But as the boy's father enters, Meg realizes Ralphie is no longer under her, or in the room at all. The child she smothered was Ralph. The episode does not have an explicit answer for what happens, so I asked my friend Carrie to discuss it with me and provide her thoughts on how it might be interpreted. Note, in the following interview, I state that the same actor plays Ralph and Ralphie. That was poor research. Both parts were played by twins Ethan and Gavin Kent. I apologize for the oversight. I'm Adam Timish, and this is Scrambled Transmissions. So what were your kind of initial thoughts? This was the first episode of the entire series. Uh, what did you think of it? Okay, yeah, I was not sure what to expect. I wasn't, I didn't understand, I didn't know this genre. Yeah. I didn't know anything. So I guess when it all started and there was kind of a creepy vibe to it, um, I was immediately on edge, but also excited because I love psychological thrillers and like things that you have to question and you're trying to figure out what's really going on. So I liked it overall. So I watched it twice because I felt like I needed to go back and kind of reabsorb it a second time. And the dad, I really noticed the second time around his behavior. Yeah. This very distraught guy or seemingly distraught. And he's hiring a woman he doesn't know and he doesn't care about her references and he just wants to leave. I felt super on edge about the kid and about the dad. Because the fact that he didn't wait for his son to come out of the bathroom and introduce him to this babysitter and see that interaction, like he just wanted to go. Yeah. And that made me weary of this kid more than it made me weary of dad right. when he was leaving. Clearly, they needed some sort of background information on each other. I don't know. We'll talk about maybe what actually happens in this episode, but... There was important information about Ralph that Meg needed to know, or there yeah. was important information about Meg that Ralph and the dad needed to know. Yeah. Yeah. And that just, that conversation just never really takes place <laughs> at all. You know, it's just. Yes. And that is so weird to think that a parent, what is going on in that relationship that a parent is not concerned about who they're leaving their kid with. Right. The other question then is, what is the dad doing in the hotel room with the son? Are they 
traveling? Are they on vacation? Why are they in a motel? <laughs> you know, and we never we never find out the answer to that. No, but I noticed that the closet is full of clothes, full yeah. of hanging clothes. So they've unpacked. And that is so to me, it's not like he took his kid there so he could go on a date and they live in the same town. Right. It's like, yeah, are you traveling or are you living in a motel right now because of the story that comes up later to get out of the house? But yeah, I noticed that the clothes were in the closet and it's so bizarre that he'd be going on a date out of a motel. Yeah. I don't know. Especially if they're traveling or on vacation. To me, that seems even almost worse to be like, I'm on a trip with my son, but I'm going to take some time out to casually date yeah. at the same time. Yeah. Yes. So weird. So the dad is rushing out and Ralph, the son, stays in the bathroom for a, a while. And then mm -hmm. when he comes out, he's very standoffish towards her, but she's also very, very standoffish towards him. And that's, that's one of the questions I was going to ask you. In your opinion, is Meg a good babysitter? <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, the, the series answers that for you at the end of it, but um, she's, not, she's not very like warm or approachable at all, I, I feel like. Am I off base on that? I think I see what you're saying. I took it a little differently, though, because I think I kind of liked the way she approached Ralph in that he was unsure of her. And she kind of mirrored that a little bit to maybe give space. I, I felt like, okay, I'm going to treat him not the way he's treating me, but not overbear on him or uh, make him uncomfortable. I'm going to give him the space between us. And it is awkward for her too, especially with the way the dad left. So I think she's feeling on edge. And then, you know, when he slams the door, she's even more hesitant with this kid. Yeah. So then we kind of get into the actual plot or the mystery of the episode, which is that Ralph claims that there's another kid in the bathroom named Ralphie. Yeah. And he kind of suggests, you know, Ralphie is terrible. He's abusive, you know, and they don't want to wake him up because they're going to be in trouble if they, they wake him up. Right. I guess I was in a, a little bit of therapy brain of what, does that mean? I was definitely not in a sci-fi place. <laughs> right, right. Which I don't know if that's what it ends up being, but I started to think about coping skills of if this kid is putting something in another identity, if he has another, maybe his own other identity that he puts all his negative feelings or uncomfortable feelings on. And so I thought it was more, other than maybe this is going to get really creepy, I thought it was more he's projecting some of his stuff into that bathroom. Yeah, I tend to agree. And I, I think one reason for that is the name Ralph and, and Ralphie. You know, it's not like he was claiming there's a completely different kid with a different name in there. You know, it was just a version of his own name. So I think that that means that, yeah, he was either he's disassociating in, in some way. Yeah. But I, I guess the question is, do you think he's doing it as a game to be playful? Or is it, a, is it an actual wellness issue that, that he's in, incapable of, of reconciling? Yes. And I, I do think it's a mental health issue because, the, because of the way the dad was. 
him not trying to get the kid out of the bathroom sits uneasy for me. Right. It made it feel like he just had to get out of there. That makes me think that this kid has been going through this for a long time, has had these shifts in personality for a while, and the dad is scared of him. So I think that that was a mental health issue. To explain Ralphie, Ralph, the main kid, is wearing like shorts and a green t-shirt and is a very normal looking kid. Ralphie, when he comes out of the bathroom, and again, there's only one of them out at a time, when Ralphie comes out, he's wearing no clothes except underwear and a yellow cape. Same, same kid playing Ralphie. And he begins to chase the babysitter around the motel room in an aggressive way, not in a playful way. He's, I think, threatening to get her or something like that. So this is a scary, scary kid. Ralph, come on. We both know that there is no one in the bathroom. Damn it. What? He heard you, and now he wants to talk to me. Tell him no. I can't. Why not? You wouldn't understand. I'll be back. So eventually that calms down and she's trying to get Ralph to go to sleep. Ralph starts to want to have very odd conversations with her. Um, The first thing Mm -hmm. is he's trying to insist that she tell him about sex because he's heard so much about it from just kind of overhearing his dad. Mm -hmm. And then he transitions into what had happened to his mom. Yeah. Super creepy segment where he's telling her that he's got a rehearsed story because his mom's not around anymore. And his dad has created a rehearsed story that they tell people. So when he talks about it, you know, he just says, dad came to pick him up from school one day and he got him like McDonald's or like Happy Meal or something, which was really weird because he never does that. And Dad was telling him that mom was really sad and that she needed to escape this sadness. So she ultimately hung herself in her closet so she could escape the sadness. And he's detailed about that, too, which is weird to me because it's like if this this was the story that dad told, why would he go into a detailed description about her hanging herself? Exactly. I was like all the boundary issues. If this is true. Dad talks about these weird, inappropriate things with his friends in front of his son. He leaves his son in motel rooms to go have sex with strange women. And then he tells his kid a dark, detailed, traumatizing story about the way his mother died to tell people. I don't understand. 
Right. So that was the first story. And you would think that the first story would be one that is maybe clearly a lie. Like it's more, you, you would think it would have more of a positive spin to it. Like, oh, my mom went on vacation and never came back or something like that. But instead, it's this very graphic kind of, well, not graphic, but it is a very detailed story. Yeah. So it comes across as truth. But then he gives the second version. So the second version is that Ralphie killed his mom. Right. <laughs> it's pretty straightforward. <laughs> right. And and making the clear distinction that it was Ralphie, not Ralph. Mm. Which, yes. again, yes. kind of implies the disassociation and, and things like that. So then what do you think the truth is about the mom? Or is there a way to reconcile both of those stories? I would think that the original story he tells is probably got some truth to it. So yeah. it's possible that he stra- like Ralph strangled his mom or Ralphie strangled his mom or t- put a rope around her neck or, or something like that. Or it could be that, yeah, maybe mom did die by suicide, but could it have been partially due to the unruliness and like the difficulty of Ralph slash Ralphie's dissociative identity yeah i'm wondering if the father didn't explain the suicide but blame the son obviously he's got Uh, boundary issues and yeah is that something that would have created the disassociation if you know ralph is being blamed for his mother's suicide would he blame that on ralphie instead of himself i love that idea (laughs) (laughs) that's That's really interesting. Yeah, because if we're talking about like dissociative identity disorder, or some people would say multiple personality, which is not what it's called. But yeah, you know, that is often created from a trauma that somebody has experienced or traumas. And they're, they're kind of split to where that's how they deal with it to avoid the pain and the memory of that they disassociate, or they dissociate themselves. And there can be kind of another personality or another identity. I think we might crack this thing yet. (laughs) Those are good thoughts about Ralph and Ralphie. But we still have some issues with Meg the babysitter. Oh my God. (laughs) This thing really, really unravels at this point. Yeah, because Meg woke him up by telling Ralph to get in bed. Get in bed. Yeah. And she gets kind of loud. And he tries to, remember, he tries to like shove her quiet, like jumps on top of her. Yeah. So then does he go back into the bathroom to try and stop? Yes. Ralphie? Okay. And at that point, she gets up and she's, I guess, kind of dizzy or... Yeah. She's experiencing something where she's getting a little bit confused or I don't know what happens. And she looks over towards the bathroom and there she sees Ralph and Ralphie. Yeah. She gets up. And yeah, she has this weird discombobulation, this like fogginess that she's experiencing, which is really bizarre. She can hear Ralph and Ralphie yelling uh, like Ralphie's attacking Ralph. And that's when she calls 911 to get some help because she thinks he's a danger to himself, possibly to her. Right. They come out and they're both standing there and he says, I couldn't stop him or something like that. Mm -hmm. So then Ralphie goes to attack Meg, and then Ralph tries to stop Ralphie, but 
Ralphie suffocates Ralph. Yeah. And then goes to it and then continues his attack on Meg. And then Meg is suffocating Ralphie. Ralph is on the bed. And then when the dad walks in, Ralph is no longer on the bed. Instead, he's underneath the babysitter being suffocated. And Ralphie with the yeah. cape is is gone. Yes. Which that, that, can I just pause for one second, which is. Please do. The, the two outfits really throw me, especially because even the first time when he came out and then he went back in the bathroom, if it, if it is the same kid, he changed so fast. Yeah. Children that age do not dress themselves that quickly. Yeah. So go ahead. <laughs> no, that's, that's a good point. And I think it adds to where are the lines of reality in this episode? You yeah. Know? And that's, that's the big confusing thing. And I think it's made worse by the end of this because right. now not only are you trying to figure out what's the truth between Ralph and Ralphie, but you're also wondering what is the deal with the babysitter? Because now they're obviously only one kid, Ralph, and she has killed Ralph, but why? Because I, I don't think it can just be explained with protecting herself. I, I don't know. I don't think that is necessary for her to go to that extent to protect herself from this nine-year-old kid. Right. So why is Meg killing children is my question, Carrie. <laughs> oh, such a simple answer to that question. It's just such a crazy moment. So something I did notice with this is her nose is bloody. So there is a moment where she is attacked yeah. uh, because when she goes to save Ralph, Ralphie elbows her in the face, mm -hmm. uh, which, you know, is further disorienting to her. Get your nose broken. You're going to be a little bit yeah, disoriented, I guess. That was really bizarre to me. I don't know what's going on with Meg. I don't think she's a killer, but I do think, Something happened to her in this room. Yeah. That kind of sh shifted her. I mean, when she gets that that kind of foggy vision, I'm wondering what is happening to her in that moment. Is she dissociating herself? Does she have some sort of psychosis? But it has to be something already there, right? It It couldn't just be the events taking place in that motel room that drives her to that. Right? There there has to be right. something already there. I, the fact that she has also put herself in a quote-unquote risky environment. She has gone to babysit for a stranger at a motel yeah. where he doesn't care about her references and he leaves without introducing her to a kid. If I were a babysitter, I would be scared mm -hmm. until that kid came out. So she's already kind of putting herself in risky situations. And then... I don't know, maybe she has some sort of struggle with psychosis already and it just was exacerbated by his scary stories or something like that. I'm not sure. By the end of it, like you said, her nose is bloody. The dad's trying to resuscitate his son. I think you can hear the, the police sirens outside. And she just starts right. laughing really hard. Like she's yeah. laughing at the whole yeah. thing. But here's the kicker. As she's sitting there laughing, the bathroom door slams behind her at, right before the episode ends. Did you notice that? Oh, I for sure, for sure I noticed that. Okay. I was like, what the hell? What is going on? 
is it a haunted room? <laughs> it just, it gives so many different ending possibilities. Yeah. What do we take from that? What do <sighs> we take from that? Gosh. Well, so <laughs> one thought I've been having about all of it and how does it tie together is it's all shot from Meg's perspective. It follows Meg's experience of Ralph. It's her experience of the dad. It's her experience of the fight. And it's still showing her when she's laughing and that door shuts. So I'm wondering if this is all through the lens of Meg's own psychosis yeah, or something like that, that we are seeing the story that that door shuts. Nobody else sees that door shut or hear that door shut, but she does. No, that's a really, really good point. As though like to her, Ralphie still exists or is still a threat. Right. Like, I'm not crazy. This just happened. Like, I'm not crazy. I'm not crazy. It's difficult to decipher the twist of this episode. Is Ralphie suffering from a dissociative disorder, or is he just an imaginative kid with a poor grasp of boundaries? Is Meg prone to episodes of psychosis, or did a violent child's game simply push her over the edge? Is there a third option, where some sort of malevolent force is tormenting them both? I'm honestly not sure, but at the center of this episode is a question about behavioral health, and maybe more specifically, mental health. May is National Mental Health Awareness Month. And as the entire world hopefully begins to recover from a -a once-in-a-century pandemic, as well as multiple traumatic social and cultural events in the past year, it's more important than ever to talk about our health. That's where my guest Carrie comes in. She's a family counselor, and while she will soon explain her job in her own words, she works largely with youth in crisis. That's why I thought she would have a unique perspective on this episode, as well as some great information about the work she does. I am a family counselor, a family therapist, and I work specifically with families where the adolescent has been convicted of some sort of crime, and the courts are would like to see the family work on their family function. So specifically, I'm a functional family therapist. That is what my job title is. On a day-by-day basis, then, what does your job typically look like, or what what are you doing on a daily basis? Yeah, well, uh, pre-pandemic, I I go to people's homes. So right now it's telehealth and I'm doing it via Zoom. But uh, I see families at least once a week that are on my caseload. And it's a three-phase therapy. And so we start out with just some motivation and we try to get the family to stop blaming each other for the things that are going on and start creating some hope. And then we move into the behavior change piece and we try to learn some new skills that'll help them to function a little bit better for them. And then finally, we just finish out with generalization. And that is, are they connected to resources that are helpful to them? Do they need other types of therapy to go on after this? We just make sure they're ready to close out at that point. So I work with families to identify where things aren't functioning so great for them and how we could switch that up. What are some some common things that you feel like a lot of families are struggling with? 
there's a ton of change with the pandemic. Kids are being homeschooled, a lot of them, and parents have had to shift their work. But a lot of the people I work with, I see a lower socioeconomic status. So they tend to be uh, have a little bit less financial stability. I tend to see a lot of families that don't have two caregivers, or they have maybe um, a grandparent that is the parent in the situation because maybe the parents are no longer have rights. So a lot of loss, a lot of uh, abandonment or trust issues that I work with within families, and I guess grief as well because of that loss. What are the symptoms that come out of some of those those issues? What are the things that you're specifically trying to prevent them from doing? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, because I do work with kids that are in uh, involved with the criminal justice system, they have a lot of different kinds of behaviors that have occurred. I see a lot of kids, especially I'm in the Kansas City area, so kids that are in trouble for gun use or perhaps robberies or a lot of assault. I guess a lot of the symptoms would be finding themselves with other peers who are making choices that aren't the best. Yeah. You know, finding a family in that way, because maybe the family that they're in right now, they don't really feel safe or they don't really feel seen or loved. I also see a lot of parents in these situations stifle their kids. They tell their kids what their kids think. They tell their kids everything about what they're going to do and how they're going to act and how they're going to feel. And so kids will shut down and not want to be home, not want to talk to mom or dad. They'd rather just be doing what they want to do on the street somewhere. What are some of the ways that you coach that? My job at the beginning is to find noble intent for actions. That means that a kid can do bad things or a parent can do bad things, but is it because they want to be bad? Probably not. It serves a purpose and there's some noble intent in that purpose. So for example, if a kid is running away a lot and they'll be gone for weeks at a time, we find out, well, what led to this? Okay. We got into a fight at the house and mom started yelling. Okay. So it sounds like you leave the house because what you really want is to be at peace with your family. You don't want to have fights. So you leave so that mom's not yelling and she doesn't feel like she has to yell anymore. And so that you can deal with whatever, you know, I reframe it in a way that we have to start seeing each other for the good that we are aiming for the good that we're intending when we do things that aren't so good. Yeah. Yeah. If I can get them on the same page and start to look at each other a little bit differently, not so much as the one who needs to fix themselves, but more like, oh, I see why you've done some of those things. Or I see maybe why I yell isn't because I hate my kid, but maybe it's because I don't feel like they see me. And so I get loud. Mm -hmm. So redefining what is going on helps us to see a way out of it as opposed to, you know, they're just bad. Is it a challenge to get people to come to the realization of some of those noble intents, or, or do you have to do quite a bit of leading them into it? It definitely depends, especially because I work with a lot of court-mandated clients, which means they don't want to be there right. to begin with. So that can be a little tough. 
But if I can build a good enough rapport where they can trust me, which takes time, then when I offer up that bit of grace for the person who made a bad choice, the parent or the kid themselves, depending on who it is, can be more receptive of that. But uh, one really important part of what I do is I have to be able to identify who has got the most power and whoever that is, I have to make sure that I don't lose them. They are the most important part of that building hope. So if I can make sure that they feel heard, that they feel understood, the rest will kind of follow as long as the person in power, the biggest powerful position, which can be the kid a lot of the time. Yeah, I was actually going to ask that if it, it changed based on the roles. Yes. I have a lot of kids that are, we call it one up. They're one up to the parent. And a great way to identify that would be if mom says you can't go out, do you just go out anyway? And if mom says, give me your phone, you're grounded. Do you just not give her your phone and she gives up? You're, you're probably one up. You have more power. If there's a situation where a kid is one up, does labeling that or identifying that, does it risk empowering them further for them to know that? If the kid is one up, my job is not to change that. The kid is going to probably remain one up. But how do I help them to function and see each other in a way that's helpful to them where the kid can use their one-upness to better influence the family? So it's not about changing who has the power. It's changing how the person that has power is using it. How long do you think it typically takes you to kind of build that trust with them? Overall, I feel very capable of pretty people person-y. So I can usually intuit the way a family is. I can intuit kind of the vibe they are needing from me and match them, which is important, matching with a family so they feel comfortable. So most of the time, within a couple of sessions, I have pretty good rapport. And that's partially because when I'm reframing what's going on in their family and I'm giving them that noble intent, it takes away the judgment they get from POs, probation officers, judges, all the programs that they have to be in where they're preaching accountability and you did this and you did that and you got to stop. And my job is to say, not so much that you did this, but it must have been really hard or it must have been really confusing and validate their experience as opposed to condemning them for what they've done. So if I can separate myself from the court enough, because, you know, I don't really report back to the court much yeah, and say, this is between us. I'm not here because a judge is going to ask me what is going on. I'm here because your family seems to be in a tough spot right now. How can we get through this? Especially those families that say, I just want you out of my life. I just never want to see you again. Okay, then let's go ahead and make a plan. Let's let's talk through some stuff so we can get through this more quickly for you to guys to get you know off probation and, and get out of this extra uh, meeting you have to have every week. So you just have to kind of meet them where they're at and they tend to loosen up as time goes on. Have you ever watched Mad Men before? Part of it, not not enough. In the first season or two, I can't remember exactly which, it's determined that his wife needs to go see a, a counselor or a therapist at some point. And you see what a stigma or a discrimination there was behind that. I think as a society, we've come so, so far in that regard. 
the last stepping stone is to just make it affordable and accessible for everyone. A really great resource I tell my um, a lot of my families about, especially my adolescents who have a lot of anxiety around phone calls, <laughs> um, is there is a crisis text line and it doesn't have to be like suicide crisis. It can be. It can be you're having a panic attack. It can be anything at all. And you can text uh, the word home, H-O-M-E, to 741741, and they will text you. So you don't, ha- if you're really uncomfortable getting on the phone, you can have somebody there texting it with you to get you through just that moment. Because crises that everybody can go through, they are moments. Sometimes they, they feel like very long moments. But there are some options outside of just uh, the suicide prevention hotline and, and going to see a therapist if you need help right now and you don't need to call 911 please do if you need to but you can text that 741741 and they will talk to you well that is so so very helpful and i thank you so much for for bringing that up i certainly had no idea about that mental health is your health if anybody does listen to this and they have questioned you know if they should talk to a therapist or they should go get that psyche valve or whatever, or start talking about medication because there's nothing wrong with that either. We have to stop the prejudice and the discrimination because it's not, stigma is not a great word. It's discrimination and prejudice against seeking out uh, a wholer, more healthy life with our mental health. And so if anyone feels a little fear about that, don't be scared. We are not here to judge you and you're not alone. All of us mental health workers, we need help too. And we're here. You don't have to be going through stuff by yourself. Scrambled Transmissions is written and hosted by Adam Timish, with additional production support from Blake Walker and Ox Audio. Very special thanks to Carrie for watching and discussing the episode, as well as talking through her thoughts. And of course, thank you for listening. If you like Scrambled Transmissions and this episode, please take a moment to rate and review it so it can be shared with others. As always, until next time, watch something weird. <laughs>